Hello and welcome to the Church Society podcast. I'm Ros Clark, I'm the Associate Director of Church Society and I'm your host here on these podcasts. This week we're still uh, hearing from the recent uh, Jake conference, A Gospel in the Parish, and I wanted to share with you some excerpts from the panel discussion. But before that, here's Lee Gatiss from uh, his closing remarks. It's not a full session, just a, a few thoughts at the end of the conference, thinking about how we engage and why we engage with the Church of England, the goal of Jake, uh, but also some really helpful things for all of us here uh, to think about, particularly in terms of how we engage with those we disagree with and how we apply that when we're online. I said in the introduction to Confident and Equipped a number of years ago, this uh, book that came out of uh, one of our early Jake conferences, but I say in the um, introduction to this um, about Jake that is a national initiative, so we're looking to have a national reach here across the whole of the Church of England to encourage and equip people in the early stages of Anglican ministry. So it's been great to have people who are thinking about possibly exploring ministry one day, uh, to those who are going for a BAP, Several of you at college, I think there are five colleges perhaps represented here amongst us this year, which is very disappointing because we had seven colleges last year. Um, But that's great to see such a a variety. Um, And those who are in curacy and then incumbency. We'll kick you out after incumbency, after you've been an incumbent for a couple of years. Uh, So that we keep the junior, the junior sort of level of what we're about. Um, The vision for Jake, which was set very in in our early conferences, has always been a very high bar. Our, our aim is to evangelise the nation. Our, our aim is the conversion of England. So that, as I say here, uh, we evangelise the nation so to present Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit that people might come to put their trust in God through him, to accept him as their saviour and serve him as their king in the fellowship of his church. And... Really, the the vision of Jake is the rededication of the Church of England to that task of evangelising our nation. It sometimes does not feel that it is up to the task, that it's fit for purpose, but we want to make it that. And to do that, we start with ourselves. And so we want to rededicate ourselves and our church to this task of evangelising the nation. And, And we really, therefore, want to pull in anybody who would identify as evangelical and is behind that vision, whether they're conservative, open, charismatic, egalitarian, complementarian. We don't care if you're on board with that, rededicating ourselves to the evangelisation of the nation. So that's who Jake is for. It isn't just for angly nerds. Uh, I don't know why I'm pointing at you, but... Uh, <laughs> it isn't just for people who are into robes or liturgy or anything like that. We're about the evangelisation of the nation. Um, And I hope that you you see that vision, not just in our conference and our openness to your ideas for doing that, but also in our Facebook group as well, which is an ongoing thing year by year. So all of you are in the Facebook group, I think, if you're on Facebook, hopefully, if you're not, that you will be soon. Uh, That is a way of continuing our discussions together. Um, And also there are lots of other ways in which we can continue discussions together, both online, in newspapers, letters, columns, all those sorts of things um, I, I regularly contribute every week, in fact, to the Church of England newspaper. I have a column there. And I've noticed on the letters pages that it's often just the same old, same old people 
writing in saying the same old, same old things. So I'd love it if we could all just bombard the Church of England newspaper with some good, positive, upbuilding, encouraging letters about things we should be doing and, and, and the way forward so that we can change the national conversation in something like that and in the Church Times. But let's try and change the conversation. We can do it by writing and getting involved in that way. Um, and being involved in synods and, and things like that. But I did just want to briefly talk to us about our social media and other kinds of engagement, um, because it's something that is on our agenda. We all are seeing that or doing it in a certain degree. And uh, as I was preparing my lectionary series for the newspaper column recently, we've been doing James in the lectionary. Those who do the lectionary will have noticed that. Uh, and coming up is James 3 and 4. So I wonder if you just turn with me to James 3.13. James 3.13. Let me just read the lectionary reading, which goes up to 4, verse 8. As we think about our engagement with each other on all these contentious issues in the church, in, in the Facebook group of Jake, but in other places too, let's think about these things. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbour bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom, is that the only place where you get scare quotes in the Bible? But such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual demonic for where you have envy and selfish ambition there you find disorder and every evil practice but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure then peace-loving considerate submissive full of mercy and good fruit impartial sincere peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have. So you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favour to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Well, let me just tell you what, I, what I've written in my lectionary column for that and pondering on these sub subjects of our own engagement. It says in James, if we lack wisdom, chapter 1, we should ask God. But it seems that some people, these people that James is talking about, some of us maybe, some of us think we are wise enough already. We don't need to ask God. And yet 
their conduct, these people, even with other Christians, is full of bitter jealousy, insatiable ambition, and unwarranted boasting. That's what James is saying. Does that resonate with what we see online sometimes? And that it does tend to cause fights and quarrels amongst brothers whose primary thought perhaps is more prominence and more prestige for themselves. And yet God, on the other hand, wants more of them, more of their hearts. He yearns for wholehearted friendship, which is only fostered by an attitude of repentant humility. Now, an attitude like this is difficult for those who have let their selfish ambitions and worldly desires run away with them and distract them from the way of Christ. So James concludes that their much vaunted wisdom is actually what? Earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Precisely because it is not peaceable, gentle and merciful. Isn't that what he's saying? Their sinful passions and propensities cannot be satisfied without attacking other people and dragging them down somehow. Whereas James says truly spiritual wisdom raises others up and is itself itself exalted by God who gives grace to the humble but opposes the proud. No one in the Bible, I think, better exemplifies that than the Lord Jesus himself, of course. But Moses is also said to have been the meekest and humblest man on earth. In their Numbers chapter 12, verse 3. I've often wondered if he wrote that verse. Um, which would be interesting, wouldn't it? The meekest and humblest man on earth was Moses. And that startling declaration about him comes in the middle of a story in Numbers 12, where Moses was being publicly undermined by his brother and his sister. And yet we hear nothing about Moses' retaliation. God himself opposes the proud, vindicating Moses and chastising Miriam in a rather ironic and powerfully appropriate way. What does Moses then do? Do you remember? Is he full of of schadenfreude and gloating over the downfall of his brother and sister? No. He graciously and earnestly prays for those who stood against him. Let us be in no doubt, brothers and sisters, that is the kind of meekness that we need in today's church. But many doubt the effectiveness of humility. James says that pure, impartial and sincere wisdom leads to a harvest of righteousness rather than to rivalry and discord. It puts friendship with God first and tries to contend for him only in ways that are pleasing to him. Only this way of going about things will lead to the results that God himself longs to see. And yet there are always people, aren't there, who scoff at the idea of courtesy and kindness in the midst of our disagreements. What is needed, they believe, is something more robust and strong. So Calvin actually comments on these sorts of people when he's talking about this passage in his commentary on James. He says, They who are carried away to evil speaking by the lust of slandering have always this excuse... Quote, what, can we remove evil by our courteousness? 
And of course, it is true. If we think about it, it is true that winsome, amiable engagement alone is in and of itself not sufficient. Yet, the bad breath of bolshiness is so unattractive and off-putting as the expression of our inward angsts and unsubmissive hearts that it can only please the devil who seeks to divide us from each other. Uh, No stranger to attacks on his own person and on his theology, the 18th century evangelical hymn writer Augustus Montague Toplady once said, it is not necessary to be timid in order to be meek. So meekness isn't weakness, but neither is harshness strength. Humility seeking unity is the truly courageous path. So submit yourselves to God and to his judgment, asking him to give you true wisdom and understanding. Only then, I think, will we be less worried about what other people are thinking and saying and writing and doing. We will be less susceptible as well to the impetuous and insatiable and inordinate ambitions that we might sometimes have to judge or to destroy those who are in our way. So I kind of preach that to myself whenever I log on to Facebook or Twitter or something. And I think it's something, as I was pondering that passage for writing on it, that perhaps we all could uh, do with thinking and praying through. Meekness is not weakness. And actually, we must make sure that our methods are in line with our goals as we think about reforming the church and evangelising the nation. Really helpful from Lee. So as I said, I wanted to bring you some excerpts from the panel discussion. This is always a feature of Jake. In the middle day, we get gather together a panel, including some of our speakers, some of those who've come to lead seminars, and give the delegates a chance just to ask anything that they want. And given the theme of this year's conference, it was no surprise that a number of the questions were focused around parish ministry. And we began with a question about uh, the kind of situation that happens in many churches where you have a pattern of different services through the month. So maybe a communion service one Sunday a month, maybe an all age service one day a month and so on. How do you stop people thinking that's a, a license to pick and choose the ones that they like and not turn up in the other weeks? I know that in a number of churches I've been a member of over the years, it's traditionally been the case that there's a lower attendance at the all age or family services. A lot of people just choose not to come to those services. Some churches you may find uh, that there's a varied attendance depending on who's preaching, for example. How do you deal with that and how do you encourage people to see that they must come every week? Well, one answer, uh, helpfully given by a number of people on the panel, was simply that we teach people that the reason they come to church is not just to do with what they like, but that they come for the benefit of others. Here's Paul Darlington to kick us off on that. Uh, it's like change in all things. I think in, in, in the Christian church, if we want change, we've got to teach. 
first because there's good reasons for coming to a service you don't want to come to because there's other Christians there you might be thinking of serving them for a minute or two and that is why people will come to services they don't like so nobody likes the variation of music we have at Holy Trinity because there's a bit of everything nobody's happy but we all keep coming because over time we've been able to teach that culture that I am coming to encourage my brother and my sister and they're coming to encourage me that's something I often say, particularly to mothers and parents more generally, but particularly mothers of very young children. Very easy for them to feel discouraged about coming to church because they feel like they don't get to hear any of the sermon. They might not even get to stay in the room for much of the time. All they are doing really is looking after their child in a different place and it would be easier for them to do that at home. And the thing I always say to them is it is such an encouragement to me to see that you have made the effort to get dressed to get out of the house, to come to church. Even if you've turned up late, you've still bothered to come because it's that important to you. And it makes me, who doesn't have to go through all of that, ashamed of the times where I feel like I don't want to bother. And, and the power of encouraging other people by turning up week after week is huge. And I think that's a really good thing to be teaching people. I think what you're aiming at is the kind of thing you see described in Ephesians 2 where any dividing walls that might divide Christ's people are overcome and I think that's the most useful way to think about how you should do services so I'm a, I'm a, I'm a little cautious I'm being less cautious now than I was in the seminar I'm a little cautious about um, having kinds of services for kinds of people. I think kinds of evangelism for kinds of people is great. But I think the gospel does more than allow you just to be in a service that you're comfortable with. I think it's better, if you can, for all your people to be in the same service, if you can. Now, what shape that particular service takes, I think, depends on where you are and who you're looking at on a Sunday morning when you stand up. Uh, but I think I would think in terms of the unity which only the gospel brings. So I think in healthy churches you see a group of people who would never get together anywhere else. And only the gospel does that. So that, that I'd frame the question that way first of all. And then think about the practicalities of different services after that. Really helpful. Um, Sean, do you have anything to add to that? Um, I think uh, in terms of services let me tell you what we do because i inherited it we have a nine o'clock and a ten thirty uh i actually theologically think that is a complete nonsense uh that we have two congregations um so we're splitting our church basically on the preference of liturgical and musical preference uh i think that is bonkers mm. Uh, particularly given that we can comfortably fit both congregations into our, our, our church building. Uh, nevertheless, um, the practicality of it, the pragmatism of it, is that we would lose people uh, if I messed around with that. So that's the reason I don't. But it doesn't sit, um, it sit, sit comfortably. Uh, in terms of the services that we offer, uh, we, are, we are Anglican, and I sort of think that what it says on the tin we ought to do in the tin 
Uh, and we've got, you know, and we've got great, great Anglican resources. Paul Darlington there, followed by Sean Morris. Sean is Vicar of St Matthias in Hanford, near Stoke-on-Trent, and he spoke at the conference on priorities in the parish. Really helpful talk, which uh, we will be putting up on the website, and I, I would strongly encourage you if you're involved in uh, parish ministry uh, to listen to that uh, uh, carefully. Of course it can be difficult to express gospel unity when for practical reasons your congregation is separated not just by different kinds of services on different weeks but actually different services every Sunday at different times and even in different places. Here's what I had to say about that. One of the things that's interesting about my church is it's one parish, but we have four Sunday services, all of which meet in different buildings. I mean, it's a mess. You you would not start with a blank piece of paper and come up with our Sunday pattern of services. You just wouldn't. But for various good reasons, that, that is what we've got, not least of which is we don't have a single building that's big enough to fit all of us. Um, but one of the things that's lovely is when we do have opportunities for the whole church to come together, as you say, sometimes it's at a house party, we have one or two services a year where, where everybody sort of squeezes in and it, you know, we um, contravene all the fire regulations and, and, and do that, and how delighted everyone is to be together. And that, that says to me, actually, that's quite a healthy church. We, we're not physically in the same place every Sunday because we can't be but we delight in each other's company when we can be. From there, the conversation uh, turned to discuss the wonderful problem to have of too many people for your building or for your services. Various suggestions uh, here, doubling of services, and the question of church planting also came up. But, but sometimes yes and sometimes no. So you think about when, when Christchurch got so big that I mean, there was no room to grow on a Sunday morning anymore, well, then, let's plant a church. But we know of a building that's not being used uh, at 11.15 every Sunday morning. It's our building. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't we use that? Um, so it's just, and also there'll be several other things you can save on by the fact that you can use the same building, have the same sermon, the same music group every week. So you're saving. Now, eventually, it's gonna, it has grown more we may well plant outside the building as well. Lee Gators there talking about the experience of Christchurch Cambridge, who as well as doubling their service, have also planted churches and are, I think, looking to plant another church again in the not too distant future. Wallace Byrne also talked about his experience when he was uh, vicar of uh, St Peter's Harold Wood in a situation where they wanted to plant a church but weren't able to. I was just going to say in Harold Woods and suburban London, we desperately wanted to plant a congregation and looked around everywhere in the parish, made a matter of PCC prayer for two years and, and really couldn't find an obvious answer. Paul Darlington reminded us that even in a situation where you can do a church plant, there are other factors to consider. We're actually in the middle of trying to start a congregation at a local school, which is within the parish. Uh, so we're going for the more plant-like option. I say that because um, it can never be a church in the same sense that the parish church is. If it's within the parish, it's a legal fiction. And so we've got to somehow work out what we mean 
by planting a church in that kind of way because it's not a new parish yeah. and, and how do we express an ongoing unity whereas the whole pastoral work and ministry might be separate but there's still you know I'm still going to get a say who's appointed there. One thing we must do is we mustn't make our church reforming strategy, wanting to reform the Church of England from within and be a good influence for the gospel, in work against our church planting strategy. That is, don't plant churches that are then dislocated from the Church of England. So whatever you do, whether it's in your parish still, or whether it gets its own parish number and becomes a new entity, make sure that plant serves the church reforming yeah. strategy. Yeah. Just a reminder there from Lee to think about church planting as Anglicans within Church of England structures. So we heard there from Paul Darlington about one way of doing that, planting something within your own parish, not into a church building, but into a school. And that congregation will function in some ways as its own church, but will still come under the jurisdiction of the Church of England parish and as such be a Church of England church. There are other ways of doing this, of course, the revitalisation method, where effectively you're sending a, a plant from one church that is uh, growing and, and thriving into another church which otherwise might struggle uh, and have to be closed. There are various dioceses that uh, have implemented this kind of scheme and it, it can work extremely well so that you're not actually increasing the number of parishes in a diocese, but you are planting from one growing congregation into another which isn't. In my own church we have a huge new housing development planned in the next few years and we're already in discussions with the diocese about how we can uh, extend our ministry into that new development and there are different ways uh, that we're thinking about uh, going about that, some of which might involve a new building uh, but not necessarily. We are Anglicans and we're committed, I hope, to ministering in the Church of England. And so when congregations are growing, when the church is, is thriving and we're thinking about how we multiply, it would make sense, wouldn't it, to want to multiply Anglican churches uh, if we possibly can. Moving on from thinking about the, the wonderful problem of church growth, we had a question about multi-parish benefits and also team ministries. Often, although not always, these are formed in the situation where none of the churches uh, on their own is able to be financially sustainable. And so they're merged together under the care of a single clergyman in the case of a multi-parish benefit or a number of clergy in the case of team ministries. These are becoming incredibly common around the country and they do provide their own particular kinds of challenge for ministers. From a patronage point of view, we have several um, churches in multi-parish benefices like that. I think of one which has nine parishes in which one of them is a church society parish, so we have a say. Um, we describe it as a clergy killer. Several of those kinds of benefices are clergy killers, and we've sometimes advised the bishops not to have anybody appointed to that until the team has been reconstituted or looked at because we don't think it is viable. There are other places where there was one that came up recently with about 16 parishes, 
Um, they wanted a new vicar, and he could appoint, also have a curate when he started, who he, he could have you know, from his own churchmanship. And we thought the way that was constituted, and the way that was a history of accepting that kind of moving around of services every week, that, that 16, benefits, 16 parish benefits might be doable. There's another one where I know someone works in a 22 parish benefice with two other clergy. And he's run ragged. And I think in that kind of situation, you just think 22 parishes. We didn't actually have anyone on the panel with experience of working in that kind of situation. But one of our delegates, a recent incumbent, is a team vicar uh, in a situation where he has a team rector. Um, I think two or three parishes. I don't think it's a huge team like some of the ones Lee mentioned. And he was able to share with us a little bit of his experience. Unfortunately, because he was not on the panel, he wasn't near enough to any of the microphones that that we can uh, share that with you. But I wanted to mention it because I think it's important to realise not all teams are the same. Not all setups are the same. And in the situation where Simon is, he effectively is just vicar of one church. I think there's another church that he has some responsibilities for, but it's not a, a horrific situation where you're thinking, how can I possibly get round all of, all of these places on a Sunday? And he talks about the importance of being able to work with the other people on your team. He mentioned that his uh, team rector is not somebody he would agree with on everything, but that there's enough respect for each other and recognition of their gospel ministry that they can work together very effectively. Wallace also mentioned the importance of being able to work in a team, even if you're not in a team ministry situation, as rural or area dean, for example, as uh, in his experience as an area bishop, as an archdeacon. There are a lot of roles in the Church of England which we need to be thinking seriously about taking on responsibility for, which will require us to work in teams with people who we do disagree with. And we need to work out how we can do that in a way which honours the Lord Jesus, which honours the gospel, but nonetheless values and respects people who are different from us in their churchmanship and in some of their beliefs. Thinking about what things we can compromise on, what things we uh, won't compromise on, what things we're willing to allow there to be variation in without that needing to become an issue between us. Wallace also had some very helpful practical advice uh, for clergy to think about who may potentially in the future be in a situation where dioceses are wanting to combine parishes in different ways. If, if you're in a diocese that is going to start and there are a number that are grouping things, fight for a group rather than a team. Um, because that gives you more independence, uh, but it can still be just as close and just as helpful. Evangelicals need to network with one another so that when it comes to reorganisation and the diocese says, we want to put you in with the Liberal parish next door, you can legitimately say, no, we share the odd service with St. Giles down the other way, and we have a lovely working relationship that several of the clergy of us preach together. And all of a sudden, there is an alternative geographical network. 
Well, we can't obviously share the whole discussion here, and it's not really um, a brilliant thing to listen to without uh, having been there, because you can't hear all the questions and the back and forth. But I do just want to end with Wallace Ben's answer to one of the final questions that he was asked. How do you go about gospel ministry in the parish? Have confidence in the gospel and in the in the power of the Spirit and the Word of God change hearts and preach your heart out and, and love people. And by the time you've done funerals and weddings and love people and sat by bedsides and seen people die and people know you're not going to mess up their funeral and so on and so forth, some of the issues, not all of the issues, but some of them will dissolve yeah. much more quickly. That sums up so much of what we heard at the conference. Preach your heart out and love people. And that really is the heart of all ministry, but especially if you're based in a local parish. Preach your heart out and love the people that God puts in your parish. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. As always, uh, you can catch up with the whole archive on the Church Society website or on our SoundCloud account. If you've enjoyed the podcast and you know somebody else you think might enjoy it, why not share it with them? If you've got any comments or uh, questions or suggestions for future episodes, you can always get in touch with me ros at churchsociety.org. You can leave a comment on our Facebook page or you can tweet us at Church Society. If you enjoy what we do on these podcasts, why not think about becoming a member of Church Society? You can find information about how to do that on our website as well, churchsociety.org. We'll be back again next week. Thanks for listening.